Please turn with me in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 9. We return to Acts chapter 9 and we pick up partway through verse 19. That was really the thought break in the text from last week. And last week we considered that amazing conversion of Saul of Tarsus. That preeminent persecutor of the church met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and he was suddenly saved. Well, as we continue this morning considering Saul, we see Saul in Damascus and we see Saul return to Jerusalem. And in these two scenes, as it were, we see two keys to the Christian life. It's really fascinating to think that Saul was only days earlier not a Christian, but a persecutor of the Christians. And now he finds himself as a Christian, considering how to live the Christian life. So we will go to God's word this morning to consider two keys to the Christian life. Again, we pick up our, our, our reading here partway through verse 19 and read on through verse 31. Let us attend to the word of God. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem... He attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Amen. This is the word of God. May God bless us to behold wonderful things here in his word. Well, there is a fictional story that still somehow finds itself in circulation despite being debunked years ago, and the story is of a shoemaker who was converted under Martin Luther's ministry. In coming to know Christ, the shoemaker came to Luther and asked, What do I do now? Now that I have come to know Christ, now that I am a disciple of Christ, do I become a pastor? or a missionary, or maybe even a monk. What do I do now that I belong to Christ? 
Well, in this apocryphal account, Luther answers, no, you don't need to do anything different. You don't need to leave your vocation because you are now a Christian. Instead, as a Christian shoemaker, you now need to make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. Well, this is, again, as I said, a fictional story. There's actually no record of this conversation ever taking place. However, it does illustrate the question that faces every believer in this world. Since I am a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, how am I to live in this world? Well, this is a question that you face every day. And it is also a question that you actually answer every day. So do you have clarity on your purpose and your place as a disciple of Jesus? Do you know who you are in Christ and how you can live your life, how you can live out your days to the glory of God? One's conversion to Christ can make this question particularly clear. Just think about Saul's conversion as we considered it last week. Beforehand, Saul was earnestly pursuing his own plans for this life. He was Gamaliel's top student, and he was making progress beyond many of his peers. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he was leading the charge, as it were, against this thing called the way. Saul was zealously persecuting Christians because he thought that was faithfulness to God. And so at that point in Saul's life, It seemed to him, at least, that everything made sense. He was finding success. He was climbing the ranks within his world. He was really living out what he had dreamed. And then Jesus called him to himself, and everything changed. Suddenly, Saul's life was turned upside down. He was called out of this world and into the service of King Jesus Days prior, Saul knew exactly what he was living for. His purpose was clear, and he knew how to pursue that purpose in this world. But what about now? What now that he belongs to Christ? What does that now mean for his life in this world? Suddenly, Saul had an entirely different purpose. He had a new purpose for this life, and that purpose put him at odds with all of his own people his previous friends and supporters. Suddenly Saul found himself surrounded with hostility for what he believed instead of support. So how would Saul not only align his life now with this new purpose, but how would he also surround himself with a community of people that would help and support him in this pursuit? Well, that is actually what we consider here in this text. Here we see the Christian life being lived within a hostile world. So make it personal. What am I to do? What are we to do? How can we together live our lives within this world to the glory and praise of God? Well, again, Saul immediately found himself asking and answering these questions. And so we're going to go to the text ourselves to ask and to answer them as well. Let's begin first by considering... Our orientation to the world. Our orientation to the world. Saul's reorientation to this world was truly remarkable. In only a matter of days, this man transitioned from being the preeminent persecutor of the church to becoming the preeminent proclaimer of Jesus Christ for the sake of the church. Look at the text. 
For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. What a remarkable reorientation. What a tremendous change. So what can we learn from Saul's reorientation? Well, first of all, let us notice Saul's message. What did Saul proclaim? What was Saul's message now for this world? Well, it's answered with one word, one name. It is Jesus. Saul's reorientation has suddenly made him a messenger of Jesus. And this is significant. Saul's message was not the moral matters that he found in Damascus. Saul's message was not the political powers in Damascus. No, Saul's message was Jesus. Now, this is not to say that Saul's message had nothing to do with morals or that there was no import for the world of politics, far from it. But it is to say that Saul was carefully proclaiming a person. Saul was proclaiming Jesus Christ. Here, Saul already sees that what sinners in a sin-sick world need the most is Jesus Christ. they, They need the person and the work of Jesus. They need the only Savior for sinners. Saul's message was Jesus. And notice the clarity with which he proclaims Christ. Without any compromise or ambiguity, he walks into a synagogue and he says, He is the Son of God. Notice his intentionality too. He went right into that synagogue where he boldly proclaimed Christ. In the synagogue was where Saul had the most to lose, but it is also where Saul knew that there were so many that needed to know Christ clearly. And so Saul's message was Jesus. Second, notice Saul's method. How? Did Saul carry out this purpose that Christ had assigned to him? Well, here in our text, we see Saul's earnest in his work. We see he is reliant upon the Holy Spirit, and he is depending upon God's word. Our text tells us that immediately Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. And there we see Saul's earnestness about this work. Because he knows the Savior He knows that there is no time to lose. He sees that sinners are in desperate need of knowing this Savior. And that is why he immediately begins to proclaim Jesus. And so how did he go about this earnest witness for Christ? Well, look at verse 22. It says that Saul increased all the more in strength. Well, whose strength is this? Is this some innate strength found within Saul of Tarsus? No. This is instead the strength of the Holy Spirit. In his conversion, Saul has been united to the risen Christ by faith. And so he is filled with his spirit. And because he is filled with the Holy Spirit, he is growing in the grace and strength of Jesus. You see, it is one thing to be bold and earnest When you've got the winds of culture blowing at your back. And it is entirely another when you now need to turn and head into those winds and proclaim Jesus Christ at a cost. Here Saul is earnestly proclaiming Jesus Christ by relying upon the strength of the Holy Spirit. 
And so practically speaking, we might ask, well, what did Saul do? As he relies upon the strength of the Holy Spirit, how did he go about this proclamation? Well, he did so by God's word. Look again at verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So how do you suppose Saul did this? Well, no doubt he did it with the word of God. Saul knew that God's word, according to Isaiah 55, always accomplishes the purpose that God has appointed for it. And so Saul is careful to rely upon the Holy Spirit while employing the word of God. So Saul's message was Jesus, and his method was this earnest proclamation of Jesus by depending upon the Spirit. So third, let's consider Saul's manner. Saul's manner. What did everyone see in Saul as he proclaimed Jesus earnestly? What was it now about this man that made everyone marvel? Well, it was the fact that now in Christ, Saul is a new creation. He is a new man now in Christ. The text tells us that all who heard him were amazed. They even wondered aloud, saying, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? Everyone who knew anything about this Saul of Tarsus could, suddenly, could see that he was new. He was without a doubt a different man. In fact, they could even see that he had a change in purpose. They recognized that he first came to Damascus with the purpose of persecuting Christians. And now they marvel at this fact that this man has an entirely different purpose. He is now suddenly proclaiming Christ for the sake of Christ. So Saul's message was Jesus His method was an earnest proclamation of Jesus using the word in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And his manner was that of a man made new. His manner was that of a man who had his eyes opened to reality. Before Saul's conversion, he could not see things clearly. But now coming to know Jesus Christ, he sees things as they really are. He understands the big picture. In a way, Saul reminds me of Noah. Boys and girls, you remember the story of Noah. God told him to build an ark miles and miles and miles away from the sea because the whole world was about to be flooded. Well, not only did God or did Noah obey God by building the ark, but he also became a preacher who proclaimed this promised salvation that God had provided in the ark. In 2 Peter 2.5, Noah is called a herald or a preacher. He knew both about God's coming judgment and the means that God had provided for salvation. And so he became one who announced this good news to his own family and to anyone who would hear him. Even though he was not set apart as a prophet or as a preacher per se, we still see that he opened his mouth to tell others about what they could not have known otherwise. Noah was living his life in light of things yet unseen, as Hebrews 11 puts it. 
And so he spoke to those who were around him, both about that impending judgment, about the flood that was coming, and about that promised salvation. Well, that is what we see Saul doing here in our text. This is what we see is Saul's new orientation to this world. And brothers and sisters, that is what God gives us as well. This ought to be our orientation so long as we live in this world. Listen to how Jesus tells us to live in the time in between Christ's first coming and his return. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and when they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus says that our days today, our lives in this present world, are like the days of Noah And so we have been assigned this purpose of proclaiming Jesus earnestly, relying upon the strength of the Holy Spirit and employing the word of God. Now you might be wondering, well, here in our text, Saul, we know Saul is called as an apostle. So what does this really have to do with my life? Well, Saul actually answers that question himself. After writing to the Corinthians about how we are to do all things to the glory of God, He then calls upon them to emulate him. He says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. So does that mean that we are all then apostles? No, obviously not. But it does mean that as we seek to live for the glory of our God and Savior, we are to look and to imitate Saul, this godly example. Here Saul, upon his conversion, gives us the first part in, in, of an answer to our question. Here, we, how are we to live our lives as Christians in a hostile world? Well, we are to live oriented in this way to this world. We are all messengers of Jesus. We are to carry Jesus to this world by depending upon his spirit and by utilizing his word. We are to bring God's word to all kinds of people. And we are to bring all kinds of people to God's word. Do you remember what happened to that man who was possessed by a legion of demons when Christ set him free? That man had been tormented for years and years and he was a torment to others as well. But Jesus came and set him free in a moment. Well, that man rightly wanted to spend the rest of his days with Jesus. That is a wonderful impulse. It is a good impulse. Do you remember what Jesus did? Jesus reoriented him to the world around him. Jesus sent him home. He said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. This reorientation is what God does in the life of each of his own people. It is a wonderful desire to depart and to be with the Lord, for that is far better, as the Apostle Paul says. To want to go and to be with Christ is a great desire. It is a right impulse. 
But for so long as the Lord keeps us here on this world, he sends us back, reorienting us to this world, saying, go and tell others how much the Lord has done for you. Go tell others about how he has had mercy upon you. And so here Saul shows us that in order to live our lives in this hostile world, we are to orient ourselves as messengers of the mercy and grace of Jesus. Well, that begins to ask or to beg the question, how do we do that? I mean, look at what happens here in our text. As soon as Saul begins to live out this new orientation, what happens? Well, he immediately faces the opposition of this world. So how are we to live with this orientation to the world, knowing that, we won't always be received well. Well, that brings us to consider, second, our orientation to the church. Our orientation to the church. We began by considering how Saul's reorientation to this world was truly remarkable. Well, equally remarkable is how God's word now portrays Saul's reorientation to the church. Only days earlier, Saul was the premier enemy of the church. He was ravaging the church. This man was on a mission and he would stop at nothing seeking to stamp out the church. Well, then consider what happens here in our text. Saul in Damascus immediately begins preaching Christ. And so the Jews plot to kill him. The persecutor has suddenly become the persecuted. And so the disciples must sneak Saul out of the city. And so Saul returns to Jerusalem. And what happens there is really instructive regarding our own orientation to the church. So let's begin first by examining Saul's obstacle. Saul's obstacle. Look at verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. Saul sought to join with the disciples, but they did not believe that he was one. Saul faced a new obstacle when it came now to coming to the church in Jerusalem. And what was Saul's obstacle? Well, on the one hand, it was his reputation. It was his past. Saul was well known as that preeminent persecutor of the church, and he had a reputation for ravaging the church. So on the one hand, it was his own reputation that was an obstacle to joining the church. But then on the other hand, the obstacle was actually the church itself. These believers knew of Saul's reputation, and really we might be a bit compassionate towards them because Many of them may have had friends or family that were either arrested by Paul or Saul at the time, or even put to death because of Saul. So when Saul came to the church in Jerusalem, instead of receiving a warm welcome into the church, he was held at arm's length. He was scrutinized because of his past. So right now I want you to imagine the average American and how they might react to such a reception or lack thereof in the church imagine the average american 
who decides to go to church, and there, instead of receiving a warm welcome, that man is met with something like suspicion. He is at least met with something like caution. Well, how do you think that man might respond? Well, my guess is that, again, the average American would not even make it through the service. Or if he did, he at least would not return. So that helps us to ask and answer the question, what is the significance of Saul's obstacle? Well, the significance of Saul's obstacle is found in his reaction. This is amazing. Look at this. Saul does not take offense. He doesn't take this lack of a warm welcome personally. This is a man who is obviously not easily offended, and this is obviously a man who is humble. So why is Saul able to respond in this way? Why is Saul not only not offended, but still seeking to join with these disciples? Well, the answer is that Saul understands his need for the church. Saul understands the priority that the church plays within the life of every believer. Think about it this way. Saul has just met with the risen Christ. Saul now knows how to preach Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. And then he comes to these disciples in Jerusalem. He comes to join with the church there and they hold him at arm's length. They question him. So did Saul say, you know what? I don't need you all. No, I've seen the risen Christ. I've been trained by one of the preeminent scholars in the Old Testament. Does Saul do that? No. Despite these things, in fact, we see him undeterred. Saul will not let this obstacle keep him from being where he needs to be. Saul is so convinced of his need for fellowship within the church that he is going to persevere despite the welcome that he did not receive. They essentially say to him, listen, we are not so sure about you. And Saul says, that's okay because I am absolutely sure that I need you. Saul's response to this obstacle is truly amazing. And I believe it happens because he has been humbled by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus intervened into his life and saved him. Saul knows this is, has nothing to do with himself and all glory goes to Jesus Christ for his grace. And that is why when Saul is kept at arm's length, or is questioned by the church, he has a humility that says, ask your questions. That was Saul's obstacle. So next, we need to consider Saul's encouragement. This is equally instructive for us. We need to perhaps especially note what happened when Saul faced this obstacle within the church. While there was this seemingly widespread suspicion about Saul, suddenly in comes this man named Barnabas, and he becomes Saul's encouragement. The name Barnabas means son of encouragement. And here Saul, or I'm sorry, Barnabas rather, he lives up to his own name. 
He essentially took Saul under his wing and became his go-between with the rest of the believers in Jerusalem. Saul, he, uh, Barnabas takes Saul and he takes him to the apostles where he gets them to listen and he explains to them the way that Saul was converted by Christ on the road to Damascus and how he was already boldly proclaiming Jesus. Well, we see how effective Barnabas's encouragement was because we next see Saul going in and out freely among the disciples in Jerusalem. Barnabas was able to encourage Saul and he was able to encourage the church. And seeing uh, Barnabas's encouragement of Saul should get us to pause to consider the significance of this encouragement. I think sometimes we think that the act of encouragement is not that important. But think for a moment about how this man's encouragement, in one sense, changed the course of human history. What would have happened if Saul was offended and walked away from the church? Or what if the church never took the time to hear Saul out and to see God's work of grace within him? Well, if that led Saul away, we would not have most of the New Testament. We would not have some of the most glorious and clear expositions about who Christ is. Think about how much pivoted around this moment in which one man saw a need and became the source of encouragement that was needed. Brothers and sisters, who do you need to encourage today? Who can you encourage this week? And really, how can you cultivate that lifelong habit of having eyes to see, ears to hear, so that you might be the source of encouragement that another brother or sister needs in relationship to the church? Listen to God's word today and don't ever underestimate the significance of your own encouragement. Boys and girls, this is an easy way for you to begin serving in the church. Become a source of encouragement. Encourage your friends, your brothers and sisters regarding the church and regarding Christ. Finally, we need to consider Saul's devotion. We see Saul's devotion in the verses that follow and in everything else that we have written about him in the New Testament or written by him in the New Testament. Right here in our text, we see Saul overlooking any potential offense from the disciples in Jerusalem. We see him setting himself aside, as it were, so that he might focus upon his purpose, so that he might get to what is important, so that he might proclaim Christ to a lost world. We also see him here engaged with the Hellenists, seeking that they might come to a proper understanding of Jesus. Saul is going after those who do not rightly understand Christ. Saul is so devoted to the church and to proclaiming Christ that even as we see here in the text, he is willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of the gospel and for the good of the church. Now beyond our text, we have many of Saul's letters, Paul, the apostle Paul's letters, which record and demonstrate his devotion to the church. We might think about how so many of those letters begin with his 
wonderful, encouraging prayers on the church's behalf. Each of those letters unfold his careful teaching regarding the glories of Christ, his meticulous application of Christ to life in this world, and even record of how he suffered for the sake of Jesus Christ and the good of the church. This was a man who was devoted to the church because he was devoted to Christ. This is a man who, from beginning to end, persevered against all sorts of hardships because he loved that one who appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Well, in Saul's example, we have been given much to consider regarding our own orientation to the church. So given these aspects of Saul's orientation now to the church, we should give careful consideration to the following questions. They're in three categories. First of all, how am I presently oriented to the church? Am I allowing anything to become an obstacle to impede my involvement and my service within the church? Second, how can I encourage others within the church? How can I perhaps have eyes to see those who are coming to join with the church and become their encouragement? And what about those who have been in the church for years and years? How can I have eyes to see them, ears to hear them? and a willingness to go and to become their encouragement. Who needs to be noticed and heartened? And third, what does it look like to show my love for Christ and my devotion to his church? Remember what Jesus said. He said, whatever you have done to the least of these, my brothers, you have done it to me. I hope you find that an incredible encouragement to love your brothers and sisters. Jesus says, you want to you know how to show your love for me? Well, I've given you ample opportunity to do so. Love your brothers and your sisters in the church. Now, I want to close now by answering two brief questions and by giving one final encouragement. The first question is really an objection Someone might ask, are we reading this text too closely? Can we really pull all of this from the word of God and apply it to our lives? Well, in order to answer that first objection, I would turn your, att- your attention to two other texts. The first is the fall. There at the record of the fall, Satan asks Eve what God has said. And Eve either intentionally or unintentionally responds with a record of God's word that is inaccurate. She responds by giving something that was not a close reading of God's word. And so in failing to remember God's word with specificity, she did three things. She minimized the blessings, the privileges that God had already given to them and highlighted in his command. She also minimized the judgment warned by God, that judgment that was meant to keep them on guard against sin. And then third, she actually maximized the command given by God, making it appear as if God was holding out or that he wasn't tremendously good. Well, as you know, it was Eve's misquotation of what God had said that was the first sign of her impending sin. 
God's word is clearly meant to be studied closely. That's a negative example. I'll answer it also by giving you a positive example, the Lord Jesus himself. In the wilderness, Jesus was tempted, and Satan took the word of God and tried to use it to tempt Satan. Well, what happened? Well, Jesus studied the word of God closer than anyone else. And because he had studied the word of God so closely, he was able to respond quickly with the word of God rightly applied and to put temptation far from him. We might also think of how Jesus answered the Sadducees who doubted the resurrection. Jesus said, he referred to the Old Testament text where God says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Jesus proved to them the resurrection by emphasizing a verb Tense, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He proved the resurrection from a verb tense. That is how closely we are to study the word of God. Well, the second question is this. How do we live this way? Here we see Saul rightly oriented to this world and rightly oriented to the church. Neither of these come naturally to any of us. Instead, we battle with our own sinful flesh. We face the temptations of this world. We face the compromises we see so prevalent in the world around us. So how can any of us maintain or have or grow in these twin orientations? Well, this portion of the book of Acts shows us what is possible as soon as one is united to Christ by faith. What we see in Saul is without a doubt what Jesus Christ has done and is doing within Saul. You see, these orientations were not natural to Saul. In fact, they were probably the furthest thing from his own imagination only days prior. And so what we read of here in our text is the supernatural fruits that flow out of Saul's union with Christ. These fruits abound in Saul's life because he is abiding in Christ. He is looking to Christ, and in looking to Christ, he is starting to look like Christ. Brothers and sisters, what we have here in our text is the sanctifying work of Jesus within the life of one of his own. And this belongs to each of you who are trusting in Christ. Which brings me finally to my encouragement. Look at how the text ends. Look at verse 31. We're going to return to this verse next week uh, to camp out on it because it is so wonderful. Look at how it ends. So, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Christ gave the church for a time this wonderful calm. Now it was not an absolute absence of conflict, but despite any conflict, any trials or challenges they continue to face, we see that the church nonetheless had peace And was being built up. It was as they walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit that they multiplied. Well, consider the relationship between our orientation to the world and our orientation to the church. 
and how these twin orientations are what God provides to bring peace to his church. These are the twin orientations that God gives to us to teach us how we are to live in this world. Brothers and sisters, there is a relationship between our gospel orientation within this world and toward this world and our Christ-loving orientation to the church. There is a relationship between these and the peace and the prosperity of the church. So be encouraged today to seek these gifts from Christ for the peace and prosperity of the church. And for the glory and the praise of Jesus' name, let's pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word that is truly living and active. We thank you for this word that always accomplishes your purpose. We thank you for this word that gives life to the dead and causes those who were once your enemies to live as heralds regarding this world and to be committed to loving you in the church. Lord, we do seek these blessings from you. We ask that you would bless us as your people to be rightly oriented for the glory of your name to this world and to be rightly oriented to the glory of your name to each other in the church. Lord, we desire what we see there in verse 31, that peace, that edification, that fear of the Lord, that comfort in the Holy Spirit and the growth. And so we come seeking these things from you that we might give glory to you with every day that you have ordained for our lives in this world. May it be that we would decrease And that Christ would increase, that we as your people would truly live to the glory and the praise of your name. Amen. Well, let's give praise to God. Let's turn to Psalm 146, the A selection. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Let all that is within me offer To the Lord his praise. I will praise the Lord forever. Praise my God through all my days. Let's stand and give praise to God. Psalm 146a. Psalm 146a. 